Good morning. Open your Bible or reading device to Matthew 6, and we will read verses 19 through 34. If you are using the Bible under your seat, this passage is on page 685. Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father still feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, he will not much more clothe you, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeff. So keep your Bibles open uh, to uh, Matthew 6. That's where we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time uh, today. Uh, a couple things I just want to um, put in front of you. Uh, we have uh, this program here we call SOAR. Most of you are aware of the SOAR Literacy Tutoring Program, um, part of Eagle Children's Charities. It's an awesome thing. Uh, we're working with uh, mostly elementary kids from the inner city, helping them to learn to read. Uh, and it's a one-on-one -on -one mentor driven tutoring program. And we have seen uh, some amazing results. We've seen kids in, in one year of tutoring up four and five grade levels. Um, and I say it when we do the training, but I actually believe that in some cases we save these kids' lives. Um, because the statistics are pretty striking of what happens when a kid drops out of school. Number one reason a kid drops out of school is literacy. And so there's this opportunity to, to change the directory. But here's the deal. We, right now, have about 104 kids signed up to, to be uh, tutored. Uh, and to, to serve 104 kids, we need about 208 mentors because each mentor gives one hour a week, but the kids come two hours a week. Uh, and we currently have about 70 mentors. So it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out that uh, we need more mentors. And what we know is there's a lot of you who are planning on doing it because you have done it in the past. You just haven't told us. Uh, we need you to tell us so that we can take care of the kids. And for the rest of you, 
Uh, if God would stir in you to give one hour a week to change the life of a young person, we need you. So uh, Colleen is in the back. She has a, a kiosk back there. Just stop and say, hey, I can, I can do this. Um, I say the same thing all the time, but uh, my daughter, who is brilliant, uh, tutored when she was 12 years old, and her student went up three and a half grade levels. And so even though my child is brilliant, if a 12-year-old can do it, you can do it. Um, so my encouragement is to, uh, you don't have to be a teacher. You just have to be willing to uh, pour into a young person. So that's our public service announcement for this morning. Um, so stay open to Matthew 6, but just to remind you where we are. We're in a three-week series, week three of the series we're calling On Purpose. The simple uh, way to describe this series is that we are talking about what we do as a church on purpose so that you can live on purpose. It's a, kind of just using those two words kind of in a, in a creative sort of way, but, but what does it look like for us to live on purpose? Now, Miracle just read Matthew 6, 19 through 34, and what I want to do is I want to start this morning by putting that verse into context. And what I mean by putting it into context is I want you to, to imagine that you were there. I want you to imagine the people who are listening to this uh, amazing uh, sermon that, that Jesus is preaching. I want you to engage your imagination as I talk about the context. What I want you to do is, is God gives us all the ability to, to be empathetic, so I want you to put yourself in the listener's shoes. So do you, Jesus is considering what's probably the most recognized sermon of all time is the Sermon on the Mount. And um, what we know is that most of the people, not all of them, but most of the people that were listening were Jewish, and the vast majority of them were peasants. And maybe being a peasant doesn't mean much to you and me, but it certainly meant something 2,000 years ago. So imagine for just a moment that, that you have to work really from sunup to sundown, six days a week. And the labor that you do is, it's hard labor. And maybe you own a little slice of land, a little track of land. It wouldn't have been more than just a few acres, but that little track of land would have to provide for you and your family and your animals, most of your food and your income. And so you, you would work hard to, to make sure in, in, that you had what you needed, but you also had to take a percentage of everything that you grew and you had to hold it back for seed for the next year. And so you would store that seed and you would hope and you would pray that that seed wouldn't, wouldn't rot because it had too much moisture or that the rats wouldn't get into it and eat it or, or that somebody wouldn't st- steal it. But that, that seed became your livelihood for, for the years of head, the head. So, so you have all that going on, but then there's this thing called taxes, which we know what taxes are. We, we, we have our own thing with taxes, but here we have taxes that are imposed by this occupying force called the Roman government. And it's a pretty excessive tax, but if, if that wasn't bad enough, they use these Jewish minions, if you will, who also impose their own addition to the taxes. So there's taxes put upon taxes. And and so you have that, that, that weight of all of that. And, and maybe you don't own the land, but if you didn't own the land, then chances are you're a sharecropper. And if you're a sharecropper, then you really get a tiny slice of all that you produce, and it's probably less than what you need to even have a, a decent existence. So as if the hard labor wasn't enough, the conditions themselves would be pretty scary. The, the houses that people lived in, they would be, they, they would be dirty and, and damp, and, and animals would be coming and going, and, and animals would leave, be leaving their waste behind. And, and, and here's something. When, when people died sometimes in, in that culture, uh, because there wasn't enough money to bury them and because somebody who was dead was considered unclean, sometimes the, the bodies were actually just pushed to the side of the road and left there. And no one would do anything with them because it was unclean to touch the body. So imagine that being part of your, your living conditions. And, and there would be open sewage, literally, running through the city. 
Think about the fact that water, something that we all need to exist, but the water had to be carried from a well, so there wasn't anything like running water. There's no hot shower, no warm bath, no, no ability to put the dishes in the dishwasher or put your clothes in the wash machine. Just that alone, if you just thought about taking that one convenience out of our life, how much harder our life would be. But then there's the whole thing with the water. The water, a lot of it's contaminated, so sickness is pretty common. As a matter of fact, any kind of plague or disease usually runs rampant when it would, would hit a city in the, the 2,000 years ago. It was just a, it was a hard life. So, so there's hard labor, but then it, that's not it. You're starting to get a feel for what it's like to be living in this day. You're oppressed. You're oppressed by the Roman government. You're oppressed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're oppressed by the wealthy Jewish community. There is oppression all around you. And a matter of fact, if you stand up to the oppression, if you were to stand up in, the, in that day and age and cry out for justice, chances are you would be beaten or even killed. You would lose your possessions. So you just had to take it. So you've got to imagine all of that. Imagine all the pressures of raising your children in that type of environment. Imagine how difficult it would be to, to have a family and to have all of those pressures around you. Imagine how hard that would be and then Jesus begins to teach and he talks about not worrying and, and all of the things that miracle right. Just think about how hard it would be to hear those words. These are people that actually have, I guess you could say, a reason to worry. I mean, who could really blame them? And the truth is, we all worry at times. We all have things that come into our life that create worry and create difficulty. We all experience stress and we all experience pressures in our lives. So the passage that Miracle read is, is not a passage just to poor peasants. It's really a passage to all of us. It's a passage to the wealthy and the poor. And it's a passage that really unlocks the key to having a dynamic, spirit-filled walk with God. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, thank you for uh, the passage that we read today. Thank you for the opportunity to teach through it. Thank you for just the... Uh, the way that you've used it in my own life this week and just the excitement I have even to talk about what we get to talk about this morning. Uh, thank you that you stood on that hillside over 2,000 years ago and you delivered this amazing teaching about what it looks like to walk with you, what it looks like to be spirit-filled. Lord, help us to hear what you want us to hear. Help us to hold what you want us to hold and help us to take it with us when we leave this room that we would leave different than we came. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for Norflet and the team. What an awesome opportunity to just be in this room and worship together. Thank you for the voices of the people. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last couple of weeks I've been talking about the six essentials. That's part of this whole On Purpose uh, series. And, and remember, these six essentials are, are six elements that make up a whole. Or one of the things I said last week is it's like a cake recipe. If you take any one of the ingredients out of the recipe, the whole cake is ruined. But I want to recap for you real quick what the six are. So we talked about the fact that you need to gather. You need to actually be here on church. What we're doing right now is gathering, but we know that this isn't enough. That if this is all you do, that you're putting yourself in harm's way, you're really not going to grow the way God wants you to grow. So the other thing we know we want you to do, the other part of the six essentials is that you gather, that you connect. So you connect with other people. That's the very thing that Paula was talking about. You come on Tuesdays, you get into a small group, that you're with other people. The other thing that we know helps people to grow in the Lord is that they serve, that God created you for a purpose. And the more you discover what that purpose is and live into it, the more you'll begin to grow and blossom. And these are what we call the outer essentials. And then there's 
inner essentials that you are that you have devotion and so there's devotion and influence and generosity these are the things that are more uh, an inner part of who we are and then we have these arrows that we put on here and the idea of the arrows is that this is sort of all fluid it's all, all works together so you know as you gather together it's going to help you to connect with other people but as you connect it's also going to help you to get more out of the gathering on Sunday and as you gather it'll create opportunities for you to serve and as you serve it, it's easier to gather and the same with gathering helps you to connect so you can kind of see how they all sort of work together but today we're going to talk about devotion and the more I've thought about this the more I've sat even over the last three weeks with with the six essentials the more I've come to the conclusion that this really is the the thing if you will or the the key that holds all of the six essentials together you see, if I don't have a heart of devotion, it really doesn't matter if I gather. If I don't have a heart of devotion, it doesn't matter if I connect. If I don't have a heart of devotion, it doesn't matter if I serve. There's something about getting our hearts in the right place that makes all of the rest of the six essentials come to life and do the very thing that we're praying that they'll do, that they'll position you in a place to hear and obey God in your life. So just to clarify real quick, when we talk about devotion, we're not talking about devotionals. Now, devotionals can be a part of you having devotion, but this, this, this is about having a heart that's aligned towards God, having a heart after God's heart. It's, it's this idea of being focused on God. So James 4 says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And Matthew 7 says that if you ask, it will be given. He says if you seek, you'll find. It says if you knock, the door will be open. And then there's the passage that, that Miracle read. In all of these passages, there is a portrait of, of us moving towards God. There's a portrait of us doing something, of seeking, of asking, of knocking, of, 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 of moving towards God. And in all of those cases, there's this response from God of coming towards us. We move a little bit towards God and, move, and God moves towards us. So, in Matthew 6, verse 33, if you still have it open, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. It starts with the word but. But seek first. And the word but naturally tells us that this is a statement of contrast. If I use the word but in a sentence, then I'm comparing two things, right? I'm, I'm saying you could do this, but I think you should do that. And so Jesus has just got done teaching about things that are in our lives that keep us from fully experiencing God. So he goes through a list of stuff, and then he says, but seek first his righteousness, or seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. So we're called to seek two things. You can see it right there in the passage. We're called to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. What does it mean to seek his kingdom? Well, it's simply put, it is this desire, it is this, this pursuit, if you will, of God's presence and God's power in your life. I was sitting in my office and talking about this with Norflet and, and Lily and, and Carl, and, and we were talking about the words rule and reign, you know, which are pretty spiritual words. If we're not careful, that could become part of that Christianese video. You know, we want God to rule and reign in our lives. But the truth of the matter is, if you think about it, what does it, and Carl's the one that pointed out, what does a king do? He rules and reigns over his kingdom, right? And so when we pray, you know, we want God to rule and reign in our lives. That's a picture of us seeking the kingdom of God. We want God's power. We want God's presence. We want God to be manifest in our lives. We want, we want God to be a part of our family. We want God to be a part of our community. It's just this idea that we're seeking after God being a, a covering over all that we do. So there's this picture of, of chasing after God. And the question that's worth asking is, are you seeking God's presence? Are you seeking God's power in your life? Is there this deep desire for God to rule and reign 
in your life? Are you seeking the kingdom of God in every aspect of your life? And he doesn't say just seek it. He says first and foremost, right? He's saying put this as a priority. Seek the kingdom of God as a priority. So, we, so that's what it means to, to seek his kingdom. And that could obviously be an entire sermon series of, of seeking the kingdom. But then what does it mean to seek his righteousness? If we're supposed to seek both these things, what is his righteousness? We know what our mission statement here at Grace is. You guys are getting better and better at saying it. We are. I love that. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. Seeking his righteousness is synonymous with striving to live like Jesus. Seeking his righteousness and striving to live like Jesus really are the very same thing. So our mission statement could be we are a mosaic seeking his righteousness, but that would have been a little hard for people to to know what we meant. It felt like uh, striving to live like Jesus was a little bit clearer. But there's this picture of of chasing after what God really has for us. And there's there's an important theological truth that we need to understand in order for any of this to make sense. You see, when you made a decision to follow Jesus, when you said yes to Jesus, whether it was two weeks ago or 40 years ago, when you said yes to Jesus, you became righteous. In that moment, you became righteous. And to be righteous just means you're right with God. That now you are right before God. There is, there's this work of Jesus on the cross, and the scriptures tell us that that work that he did imputes, it, it's given to us, our righteousness just becomes our earth. But at that moment, the journey begins of living into our righteousness, of becoming more and more like God. So while you are seen as righteous before God, you still have patterns in your life. You still have ways of behaving in your life. You still have ways of, of responding in your life. And, and over time, there is this process of growing into the righteousness that is imputed to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the picture of striving to live like Jesus. That's the picture of seeking after his righteousness. Why does he say seek his righteousness? Because it's Jesus' righteousness that is given to us. We are seen as righteous because of Jesus. So he says, first and foremost, seek his kingdom and seek his righteousness. I want to make sure I clarify something because, and I've been saying this a lot lately, and I I think it's important. We do not work to be righteous. There is a big difference here. We are not working to earn our righteousness from God. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't do enough to make yourself righteous to God. We are righteous. We absolutely are righteous because of the work of Jesus. And that's done and it's final. The question is, are you growing in that righteousness? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus? Is your life actually beginning to look more like Jesus? Are things in your life actually changing That is the picture of seeking his righteousness. So Jesus clearly articulates that this is the primary objective. If you really want to see God do more in your life, if you want to experience more of God's power, more of God's presence in your life, then you need to devote yourself. You need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It is the primary thing that you and I are called to do as followers of Christ. But the problem is we get distracted. All of us get distracted. All of us get, get pulled in different directions. And, and maybe your son got married this week. It can be a distraction. And it was a great thing and it was awesome. But it, it took a lot of energy. It took a, a lot of focus. So there's, there's all kinds of things that come. And the things that distract us aren't bad things. The things that they come. But, but God, or, or we allow ourselves to, to get our minds in the wrong places. And, and we stop seeking his kingdom. We stop seeking his righteousness. 
So, with a few minutes remaining, what I want to do is I want to look back at the passage that we read earlier, and I want to show you what Jesus says distracts us from prioritizing his kingdom and his righteousness. So look at uh, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moss and rust can destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moss and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Remember, the word but is always put in place as a contrasting statement, right? So here we see, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then the key to understanding this one paragraph is in verse 21. What does verse 21 says? It says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. How can you have a heart devoted to his kingdom and his righteousness if your heart is devoted to a treasure of some sort? So we're going to unpack this a little bit. And what I want to do is I want to really be careful with this verse because I think it's been misinterpreted often. I think if we're not careful, what you read there is it's wrong to have stuff. If you're not careful, you read this and say, well, if if I'm going to have a big bank account, then I must be a sinner, and it's not saying that. If you're not careful, you could read this and think that a a good quality retirement plan is, is a bad thing, but that would go against a lot of the other teaching in Scripture, so clearly Jesus isn't contradicting himself. So he's not saying savings is bad. He's not saying even having stuff is bad. None of that is in there. You could actually take this to the level, and some people have, that the only way to truly be holy is to take a vow of poverty. But that is not what Jesus is saying. So there's a really uh, interesting uh, way that they translated this, this verse 19 that I just want you to see because it helped bring some clarity to me. So verse 19 says what? It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But in the original language, there is a play on words that Jesus uses. So, so the word um, store up is the word sesorizo, right? And they'll come up here on the, on the screen. And the word treasures is sesoros. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at those two words and realize that they are the same root word. One is a verb and one is a noun. And so the literal translation is, do not treasure your treasures. Which sounds a little bit different than do not store up your treasures in heaven. Do not treasure your treasures. It's about the place that our stuff has in our hearts. Remember who, who the majority of people that, that Jesus was talking to. Remember the setting. They're poor, they're oppressed, they're overworked, they're underpaid. And I'm sure that Jesus knew what they were going through, but he also knew that they would think to themselves, if only I had money. If only I had power. If only I had the stuff they have. If only I, if only, and they, whatever the sentence was, and he knew that's where they went. And they began to put those places in the wrong place in their hearts, and it kept them from experiencing everything that God has for them. Instead of seeking financial relief, instead of uh, seeking an accumulation of more stuff, instead of seeking relief from your stress and your pain by using those other things, he's saying, no, if you just seek my kingdom, if you just seek my righteousness, then I will help you to have peace about all of the other things that are consuming you. And this is hard for us. It's hard for anybody, but it's hard for us even in our American consumeristic culture. I was riding to to work this morning, and I don't even know what station was on my radio because the kids had driven the the car last, but there was a guy talking about that when you go on eBay... And you search something on eBay, eBay shares what you searched with other organizations like Facebook. So when you go on Facebook, a little ad pops up and tells you about the very thing you were looking at on eBay. and says, hey, are you, know, are you still interested? It's, it's not very subtle, is it? But the whole point is, how does that not start to consume us? you got something that you want, and all of a sudden you're seeing it coming from all different directions. This is, just, this is something we're going to have to fight if we're really going to 
win the battle of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So this isn't really a sermon about putting your head in the sand and, and ignoring the fact that you have needs. It's, it's not about living in denial. We all, we all have to eat. We all need shelter. We, we have bills that we have to pay. And, and the other thing I've been thinking about this week is this, isn't, this is the difference between worry and concern. Right? There's a difference between knowing what you have to do. There's a difference between planning for your retirement and, and planning to make things work and allowing it to consume you and, and thinking that if I just had those things, then, then I'd be happy. Then I would feel better if I just had that one more piece. So here's the question I want to ask you. In a moment of just honesty before God, you don't have to answer this question out loud, but just imagine for a minute that God was standing right here, like he was in person and he was standing right in front of you. Maybe it's easy for you to imagine that you're not in church at this moment, but maybe you're in your house and God's standing before you. And the question God asks is, is he says, you can have anything in the world you want. You can have anything at all. Just name it and I'm going to give it to you. The fact is, if the answer to that question is anything other than you, if the answer to the question is, God, I just want more of you in my life. I just want more of your power. I just want more of your presence. I want more of your, your, the very fact that you're with me. I want to experience you more. If we answered anything else other than that, then we're not seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. We're, we're missing something. And Carl actually said to me, you know, the, the crazy thing is you could even ask for world peace and you'd have missed the question. So it's not that even what we ask for would be a bad thing. The point of the matter is, is what we're asking for is more of God. I just want more of you. I just want more of you. When I, when I come into church, I want more of you. When I'm spending time with my family, I want to experience you more in everything that I do. Look at verses six, or 22 through 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are good, the whole body will be full of light. But if the eyes are bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness. How great is the darkness? The question that this one little paragraph brings to mind is, what are you staring at? What has captured your attention? Jesus says, whatever it is that you are focused on, whatever it is you're staring at, it's having an effect on you. You need to pay attention to the things that you're looking at. You need to, you need to actually be mindful of what's, what's consuming your mind. If you are seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, then you are going to be looking for God's movement in your life. You're going to be looking for God at work around you. If it's anything else, it's distracting you from seeking his kingdom. So here's an example in my own life. I have a desire to buy a 1968 to 1972, one of those years, Ford F100 two-tone pickup truck. And I've looked at a lot of them. Um, So I want to buy one of these trucks. I want to fix it up. and, And I am telling you, so this is how sick I am. So last night when I went upstairs to go through my sermon, instead of opening the sermon and reading through it, I spent an hour looking at ads on Craigslist and, and eBay and looking at trucks and thinking, yeah, that's a nice truck, that's a nice truck. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But can it consume me? Absolutely. Do I find myself staring at it? Can it take me in a wrong direction? So do I treasure that treasure? Now, does, is God okay with me having a truck? Of course he is. But can it take the wrong place in my heart? Can it get me distracted? And the thing that we've got to realize is, is that sometimes this is a sin thing, but more often than not, this is just, this is just normal things like, like better health or, or family stuff that consumes us or, or, or wanting a different kind of job or, or it could even be a vacation. Have you ever got so consumed with planning and getting ready for a vacation that like the whole world stopped to exist? Or it could be your favorite sports team. 
It could be hobbies. There are so many ways that we can get distracted. And the things that distract us aren't bad in and of themselves. What makes them the distraction is the place that they hold in our hearts. Do you treasure your treasures? The question is, what's grabbed your heart? What is it that's chasing for your attention? What do you find yourself staring at? What do you find yourself looking at all the time? What is that, that hobby or that, that thing that you're doing that seems to consume every quiet moment that you have? Verse 24. Jesus is clear. He says, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. You can't be double-minded, he's saying. This is an entire passage about setting priorities and having focus. First things first. You can't have both. Then Jesus tells us, Hey, this is what's going to happen when you treasure your treasures. When you begin to treasure your treasures, something's going to shift inside of you, and you need to pay attention to it. So look at verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. I had this picture in my mind of the crowds, and that's why I started there with, the, with giving you the setting. But imagine the people that are sitting there listening to Jesus. And he says, look, don't chase after wealth. Don't store up for yourself stuff. Be careful what you look at. All, you don't need to have all this stuff to be secure. Don't fix your eyes on anything other than me. Hey, and don't worry. And I think that some of the people sitting there were probably thinking to themselves, do you have any idea what I'm going through? Do you have any idea what it's like to live as a peasant in this community? Do you know what it's like to have the Roman government oppress you? Do you know what it's like to serve these Pharisees and Sadducees? And you tell me not to worry. How is that even possible? Worry is a part of our everyday life. We don't have a choice but to worry, Jesus. Worry is going to be a part of what we do because of the, the nature of life. But the truth of the matter is Jesus did know exactly what they were going through. He walked among them. He lived with them. And yet he still says, if you shift your focus from that stuff, to my kingdom and my righteousness. There is an inner peace that I will give you. There is a, a place that you will have that will allow you to get rid of the worry and live out your life. And how much more so for you and I? He's saying the same thing. What is it that causes you to worry? What is it that captures your mind? What is it that keeps you up at night? And he says, if you just seek me and my kingdom and my righteousness, the rest of it will take care of itself. Jesus knows all the difficulties. And he's teaching this path to his presence in our lives. So he says, and look at verse 26. Uh, it says, look to the birds of the air. They sow, they reap, they don't store away in barns. Yet their heavenly fa the Father feeds them. And then he shifts down and he says, look at the flowers of the field. They don't labor and spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like any of these. Jesus puts all these in front of the people because he wants to say, look, I am the provider of life. I'm the one that gives you everything you have anyway. I love you. You can trust me. It's really a question of knowing whether or not God really is your provider. Because if you don't believe God's your provider, then you have a reason to worry. You have a reason to chase after what you chase after. Because if you're the only one that can get you what you got, then you should chase after it with all you have. But when you believe that God really is the provider of life, that God really is the one that, that takes care of the birds and takes care of the flowers and that God loves you even more and that he'll take care of you, then it allows you to rest in your place and know that you don't have to worry. I don't want to make light of this. I don't want to talk in Christianese because I think what we're teaching today is really hard stuff. I think what we're teaching today goes against everything that we're taught and against all the patterns of the world. 
Jesus is teaching, if you just turn to me, I, I will meet you in your worry. But, man, we are filled with the understanding that if we don't take care of ourselves, nobody else will. I think this is really hard teaching. But the good news for today is that the scriptures are true. That Jesus really does say, if you move towards me, I'll move towards you. That if you knock, I'll answer. That if you seek, you'll find. There is this picture of God showing up in everything that we need. I'm going to ask Norfolk to come up, and we're going to sing a song together. Uh, he's going to lead us in a song. And, and the way I wanted to end the service today is, is I just want you to be honest. I just want you to be honest with God. What is it that's consuming you? What is it that causes you to worry? And it can be a very good thing. It could be the fact that your kid just got married and you're worried about them moving to China. That's not a a bad thing, but I need to put that in the right place. What is it that's consumed you? What's that hobby that's taken over your life? What's that thing that you desire? Where are you treasuring your treasures? And as Norflet sings, my encouragement to you is if you feel so led, just come down here and leave it at the front. You say, God, I don't want anything to distract me from you. I don't want anything to keep me from fully experiencing your power in your presence, your rule and your reign in my life and in the lives of my family. It's sort of an opportunity, if you will, just imagine bringing it down in a nice neat box and just leave it here and seek the kingdom.